Is change something that happens to you or does it happen for you? That's a very different concept that will have you thinking about how to ride the tides of change in your business. Welcome to Disrupt Yourself Live with Whitney Johnson. Our program will have you looking at change from an entirely new perspective, a framework in which you and your team can not only face an ongoing and rapidly changing environment, but look forward to it and maximize it for business success. Now, here's your host, Whitney Johnson. Hi, everyone. I'm Whitney Johnson, and this is Disrupt Yourself Live. We all know change is necessary, desirable, even inevitable, but when change happens so fast, which it usually does, it can feel like it's happening to us and not for us, which can feel kind of scary. What I've learned, having been an equity analyst on Wall Street and then co-founding an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, is that the theory of disruption that we apply to products could also be applied to people. I've since spent the last five years codifying and researching a seven-point framework of personal disruption so that whether you're scaling a business, building a team, or just trying to manage your own career, you've got a structure to do this. So what we explore on this show is how do you know when it's time to disrupt yourself? And when you do, how do you disrupt yourself successfully? In today's episode, we will be discussing just one of the seven points of personal disruption, which is embracing constraints. All too often, we find ourselves saying, if only I had more time, more money, more health, expertise, if only Oprah were my fairy godmother, I could get something done. And yet, when we take a moment to examine the role constraints play in the creative process and in our lives, we frequently find that they aren't a check on absolute freedom, but a tool of creation. With me to discuss this topic today is Orson Scott Card, an American novelist who has authored 70, that's seven zero books and counting, best known for his work in science fiction. His novel Ender's Game and its sequel, Speaker for the Dead, both won the Hugo and Nebula Awards, making him the only author to win science fiction's top U.S. prizes in consecutive years. He's also a professor at Southern Virginia University and co-producer of the television series Extinct. Welcome, Scott. Hi, glad to be here. Well, I'd like to start off our conversation by reading something that Colonel Graff says about Ender in Ender's Game and setting the stage on the off chance that someone listening is not familiar with this book. It is military science fiction. It was written over 30 years ago. Children are sent to a battle school to save the human race, and Ender is thrown into this situation where he gets unwanted soldiers, the rejects, not enough soldiers, not enough time, not enough adult supervision. And so then Colonel Graff says about Ender, Ender must believe that no adult will ever, ever step in to help in any way. If he does not believe that to the core of his soul, he will never reach the peak of his abilities. Now, before I ask you to comment, I'd like to pair that quote with something that was in your Twitter feed recently. You said, when I'm actually creating a story that works, it comes out of my unconscious. Things happen in the book because they come to mind and because they feel important and true to me. So, will you talk about what was happening in your life in around 1985? What was true about your life that would have caused this quote from Colonel Graff to come out of your mind and onto the page? Well, now, see, you're assuming that my fiction reflects uh, my life, and that is extremely rarely true because it reflects the lives of the characters. I've never been in a situation anything like Ender's or Graf's, and therefore I would never have uh, 
even thought of this idea. I thought of it only because that's the situation they were in. Those were the decisions they had to make. And then I made the, the decision that seemed most plausible to me at the time. Now, I don't know. I still have really don't, haven't, haven't decided whether Graf's training methods of Ender were good or wise. Interesting. I know that in my own life, uh, where while I have tried very hard to always rely on my own uh, resources to solve problems, and, and when I'm writing fiction, that is absolutely the only source that I have uh, in terms of telling me this is what you should do. There are always people willing to tell you, but they're always wrong. Uh, and so, uh, you know, but, but there are other times financially, uh, you know, just needing help that I call on other people constantly. So I think that, that you know, Graf's training philosophy is a defensible one, but I'm not the one to defend it because, uh, you know, when you talk about career, looking out for your own career, I always, there's a little laughter in the back of my mind whenever the word career is said because I don't know that many people who have actually embarked on a career and followed the plan and had it work. A few, a few. My, uh, my wife's father uh, set out to be a historian, and by golly, he retired as a historian a few years ago, and he's still doing history. So that's a career. That was a plan. But I majored in theater, which means I had no plan at all. Uh, anybody who majors in theater and thinks they're going to have a career is just, you know, that's just a joke. But I knew better. And uh, I just followed, uh, I just did whatever opportunities presented themselves that seemed to be something that I could handle, that was worth, worth trying, which meant that I fluctuated back and forth between self-employment and employment, uh, working as an editor, as a ghostwriter, as a rewrite guy, uh, and then, of course, as an original writer, and uh, just wrote whatever, uh, whatever projects presented themselves that, that seemed writable, and every now and then there's one that I had even had under contract that I have to buy the contract back because I can no longer write what I had meant to write. So, you know, career to me is, is a series of uh, accidents, and you discover what your career was looking back. But uh, most of the people I know, of course, most of them were theater or English majors, and uh, there's not, not much career path involved in those because you end up not doing what you... Uh, supposedly trained for. I mean, an English major, what have you trained for? To teach English. And uh, if that's not your goal, then, uh, wow, it's a good pre-law, though everything is a good pre-law uh, education. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, the, at the same time, let me just say that I have had an experience, have had several experiences with constraint, not necessarily imposed from outside with, you know, believing that no one would help me, but rather, um, I just remember uh, a high school English class writing poetry from a good friend, uh, older, of course, he's my parents' generation, uh, Clint Larson. And this was in the late 60s. It was the time when Rod McEwen's Feel Good Poetry, you know, every poem had the word lonely in it somewhere. Uh, so I guess it was Feel Bad Poetry. Well, anyway, it was Feel Sad <laughs> and, and uh, Aren't I a Wonderful Sensitive Person Poetry. Uh, and Rod McEwen, I think, is the last American poet to be a massive bestseller for his poetry. Uh, and I was in the thrall of his kind of poetry. So I was writing these sort of gushing, try to find a nice phrase, uh, poems for poetry class. And Clint Larson took me aside and said, Scott, these are fine for what they are, but they're not much. 
because, you know, any comedian can come up with nice phrasing, and that's all you're really aiming for. And so, uh, unless you don't care about the difference between comedy and poetry, um, what I recommend for you is to learn structure, to learn, literally, constraints. Uh, he said, mm. I don't want to see another poem from you until you've written a hundred sonnets. Now, we didn't stick to that because I'm still not up to a hundred yet. Uh, sonnets are hard. And, uh, you know, you, that's not what I sit down and relax into doing. But for a while, I was writing so many sonnets that that is what naturally flowed from my pen. Uh, and in the process of learning the constraints of the rhyme patterns and the iambic pentameter and um, you know, just making the rhythm work, making the thing sing. Um, I learned a completely different kind of writing, a different approach to writing, and it has colored everything I've written since. So it's the single most important assignment I have ever been given in my life. I think my career, in a way, is based on being a guy who internalized the forms of the English language sonnet. And even though when I write my fiction, I'm definitely not writing sonnets, nothing is meant to rhyme, Nevertheless, that iambic pentameter, that blank verse, flows from me without my even noticing it. I, my words have to have a certain music or it's not even, not, it won't work for me. Uh, obviously, I don't have that music when I'm talking, uh, but when I'm writing, um, that is the way that it works for me. So I don't think about my manner of writing anymore because I went hmm. through those exercises, learned those constraints, and instead of depriving me of the chance to write the gushy, self-indulgent poetry I was writing before, it liberated me by giving me amazing tools that, that were simply not available to me until I learned how to write within those constraints. And this was your high school English teacher, you said? No, no, this, this was uh, early, in college. early in college, I think sophomore year. Early college. So... That's fascinating. So it was early college because you had a professor who was willing, probably there are, I suspect your gushing Rod McEwen type poetry was actually pretty good by many people's standards, it sounds like. But your oh, teacher... Well, yeah, that's something for uh, some poor sucker of a graduate student to decide <laughs> later. But, uh, but your you professor know, was willing to push you wrote, and say... I certainly have copies of all of those old poems, but I look back at them and I... I feel a sort of wistfulness for the ignorant, foolish child that I was. But uh, <laughs> other than that, there's there's not much merit in them. For though it's Poetry Month, it's April um, when we're having this conversation. Is there a poem for those who don't particularly love poetry, um, but you would love to be introduced to this genre that you would recommend? One or two that are good introductory oh, poems. Well, see, I came in so many backward ways. Uh, and when you talk about formal poetry, it almost always is in kind of archaic language because since the modernists popped up and wrecked everything, uh, nobody writes uh, formal poetry now, or very few people do. Uh, mm. So um, I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to think a little and look a little because I think of my favorite poets and my favorite poems of theirs, and they're tough sledding uh, for a mm. lot of people. You know, Gerard Manley Hopkins is not for the faint of heart. And uh, Shakespeare's sonnets were perfectly clear when he wrote them, but they're not clear now because the language has changed so much. So that can feel pretty rough, and, and I wouldn't inflict Milton on anybody uh, who is not forearmored uh, to, to be prepared to deal with him and his endless commas. But 
uh, you know, the periodic sentence was the destruction of language in its own day. Uh, but uh, let me let me just introduce a poem of my own. I did not oh, write this. I please. did not write this after the sonnets. I was writing formal poetry as a kid because that's what they taught us to write in school back in the sixties. But uh, I was taking a science class. I dissected my first earthworm. Uh, we studied about earthworms, and the thing that stuck out to me at the uh, lofty pinnacle of, of seventh grade was the uh, fact that uh, all earthworms are both male and female. And, uh, and so this is the poem I wrote then. The earthworm is a little odd. It hath hermaphroditic bod, and in its millimetric girth it crawleth far beneath the earth, and gaugeth in its menial toil amid the grimy, muddy soil. The earthworm doesn't know it's wed to Mary Bell instead of Fred, but two earthworms, things like, but that all of this is idle chatter, two earthworms, things like this don't matter, for the earthworm doing what it oughter is half a son and half a daughter. Now, the obvious influence on that is Ogden Nash, my father's favorite poet. Uh, and anybody who can grab a uh, book of Ogden Nash's verse um, will be well rewarded just for the sheer play of language and the wonderful ideas. For example, here's an Ogden Nash poem, which, if it had a title, would be perhaps Ketchup. Here's the whole poem. Nothing, nothing, then a lottle. So what? Say that again? <laughs> Say that one more time? Okay. Picture this title, though it didn't actually have this title. It was implied. Okay. The okay. ketchup bottle. <laughs> nothing, nothing, then a lottle. <laughs> it's just, it, this is Ogden Nash's wordplay. And yeah. uh, he yeah. took the English language and, and found rhymes that don't exist. Uh, the next best introduction to poetry is the lyrics of Stephen Sondheim. Oh, I love Stephen Sondheim. Oh, uh, his his lyrics flow like scannable mm-hmm. poetry. Uh, mm-hmm. I just remember that my first real introduction to him, knowing that it was him I was hearing. Obviously, I, I heard West Side Story, but had no idea who the lyricist was. Um, but it's in A Little Night Music, and it's uh, from the song Liaisons. And uh, the older woman who is singing to the younger woman, uh, reminiscing about old liaisons, says... Indiscriminate women, it pains me more than I can say. And to rhyme indiscriminate with women, it is just amazing. Uh, and, you know, it, it's also showy. Uh, Sondheim mm-hmm. was definitely calling attention to the lyric, and yet he wasn't. It was absolutely true to the character. It's, it's I think, verse at its finest. Uh, though it was meant to be sung, um, it scans beautifully just as written language. So, the you know the only place where rigid uh, uh, lyrical patterns are required now is in songs, and uh, there's a lot of fluidity even there. Rap music pays no attention to the original accentuation of, of uh, um, English phrasing because it sort of forces an accent onto syllables that are not meant to be stressed in order to to meet the beat of the uh, the underlying music. But uh, in musical comedy, as a general rule, they still try to follow the rules. Uh, country music is notorious for rhymes of things that don't rhyme, uh, like rhyming time with fine. Those don't rhyme, mm. but, but mm. you know, in country mm. music, they rhyme. That's a country music rhyme. Wow. It's really good. Well, speaking, uh, speaking so of, you just speaking of the, constraints. The of, of every genre, <laughs> or, but, but I still find that the most difficult, demanding writing that I do is poetry and uh, song lyrics. 
Yeah. Well, so speaking of constraints, it's time for us to go on a break. We'll be right back after this commercial spot. We're talking more with Orson Scott Card, best known as a science fiction author of Ender's Game and a professor at Southern Virginia University. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want more of personal disruption? Whitney Johnson's book, Disrupt Yourself, which the Boston Globe described as the what color is your parachute career guide of today, is available wherever books are sold. If you're wondering how to apply these ideas to build a team that can manage through change, her new book, Build an A-Team, published by Harvard Business Press, is now available for pre-order. In the meantime, you can hear more in-depth interviews with disruptors at WhitneyJohnson.com. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Redis is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. By 2025, the global life sciences market will have changed dramatically from the industry we know today. Patients are becoming more proactive and focused on wellness. Healthcare providers, payers, and producers are exploring ways to collaborate across the digital health sciences network to reduce costs while improving patient safety and care quality. How will you remain relevant? Tune in on the Voice America Business Channel for Changing the Game in Life Sciences, presented by SAP. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. To reach Whitney Johnson with a question or comment about the show, please send your email to wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Now, back to Disrupt Yourself Live. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Orson Scott Card, author of over 70 books, including Ender's Game, and his most recent novel is Children of the Fleet, A Return to the Universe of Ender's Game. So, Scott, today you're now a professor at Southern Virginia University, which is this rapidly growing liberal arts college in the middle of Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley. Why did you decide after all these years and all these books you've written to to become a professor? Well, I've been teaching all along. Uh, Occasional stints at one school or another, taught a semester at Pepperdine. Uh, I've done writing workshops in many different places. Uh, taught many uh, writing workshops for Appalachian State University. So it's not as if my academic links uh, have ever been allowed to lapse for very long. Plus, I teach my own independent workshops. 
uh, Uncle Orson's uh, writing class and uh, the uh, um, my literary boot camp, which mm. you know very intense experience. But uh, when I'm teaching, I'm not writing. That's just the way it is. Even when I intend to, I find that I can't. Uh, there's just I can't shift my concentration from my students to writing, so I don't try. Uh, I just teach and concentrate on teaching. Therefore, it has to be a hobby because no, never have I been paid anywhere near enough to cover the costs of meeting my payroll or anything else. You know, uh, universities aren't geared to do that. So uh, at at uh, Southern Virginia, I'm not actually paid. I just volunteer. But my connection there is that it's a school that was uh, purchased, uh, essentially assumed the debt of a, a school that was sort of uh, dying slightly away because it it had lost much of its purpose. It used to be an equestrian um, uh, university, a college rather, for Southern women at the time that Virginia Military Institute just across the Maury River uh, was a an all-male uh, institution. And oh. uh, when VMI became co-educational and uh, taking your horse to college became less of a need or desire uh, on the part of many <laughs> women, uh, Southern Virginia College uh, was fading. And so a group of Mormon investors bought it and created it as an independent Mormon-centered uh, university. That is, it has no ties uh, officially, at least to BYU uh, or the LDS Church's educational system, but most of the students are LDS, and LDS standards are regarded as the norm on campus. That is, no smoking, no drinking, and uh, we're not... Uh, people that, that thrive with uh, co-educational dorms, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. our, our life is meant to be a little bit more kind of the way that it used to be in the 50s. Uh, and what I get by teaching there is students that I can talk about everything with. Hmm. Because if when I'm teaching at a state school or at a, at a school sponsored by another religion or whatever, uh, I keep Mormonism out of it. That's just not part of it. But that's such a large part of my life that when I'm teaching the students at SVU, I can just talk about anything that would come Mm -hmm. to my mind. And uh, it works pretty well. Interesting. So you've been you've been called out, uh, not called out. That's I'm miss miss uh, saying that you have been called or identified as a great mentor. Um, Could you talk for a minute about some of the people in your career who you've had an opportunity to mentor, um, up-and-coming authors that you have been able to uh, identify, bring along? um, Just any thoughts that come to mind for you in terms of the the opportunity for you to give back to up-and-coming writers? Well, in a way, mentoring doesn't really work in my experience for young Hmm. writers because I'm just one guy, one mind, and even if they please me, that doesn't mean they're going to please a large audience. doesn't mean they're going to please editors. And so I can be useful to them uh, by providing, I mean, I provide a lot of things. What I teach is not a, quote, creative writing class, unquote. Uh, Those are usually run more like therapy, uh, you know, like like American acting classes. They're therapy sessions. They're not uh, uh, actual (laughs) training. So what do you teach then? You say what? So what do you teach? You're saying you don't what, teach no, creative writing. What I writing. teach is specific skills and techniques to help them master the third-person limited past tense viewpoint that is the uh, dominant uh, voice in contemporary American fiction. It is the best of the tool sets, 
and mm. uh, Jane Austen began it for us, um, and it has been honed and refined until now. If you can't master the third person limited with deep penetration uh, in past tense, uh, then either you're going to do it in present tense, which means it's going to sound literary, uh, which means there are only a few genres that will accept it, uh, and, ver- and even fewer readers, uh, or you uh, are going to be regarded as kind of an amateur. So it, mm. once my students master this uh, skill, then even when they're writing something that the publisher may not end up publishing, uh, when they submit a query or an outline or, or uh, a manuscript, the editor will look upon it with recognition and happiness because here is somebody who knows how to write like a pro. And that's my goal is that at the end of my class, they know how to sound like a professional as they write. It means that they have mastered the tools. It's like, you know, if you have a guy go out in the field and he's supposed to be helping you weed and he has no idea what the business end of a hoe is for or how to use it, you're not going to trust him to be able to do much. But uh, if he handles it like a master, then even if he still can't tell which things are weeds and which things are plants, at least he knows how to use the tool. And I can get you up to the tool use part, but I cannot possibly put into the student's head what makes a story that they will care about and believe in. And, and that's the vital thing. Is yeah. you, you have to write stories for your imaginary perfect audience, and that audience is people who believe in and care about the same kinds of stories as you. And there may be only nine of them, in which case you won't have so much uh, career as simply a hobby. But if there are nine million of them, and a publisher gets the book out there where those people have a good chance of finding it, then you will do quite well and make a very good living. So it's really uh, a matter of chance, and I can't do anything about that. I can't make a writer love a kind of story just because it's going to sell well. For one thing, I don't know what's going to sell well. Uh, most agents but you are can in teach this them category. Craft. They know what sold last year. They know yeah. how to sell last year's hit but they have no idea how to sell next year's hit because nobody knows what it will look like. So in this in the spirit of that of being one of your readers, I think I've I counted, I've read over 30 of your books. Um you are I an thought amazing it would be human being. I, I hope your <laughs> life was better for that. My life is better. And so I thought what would be what would be fun for for me certainly, but I think for a lot of our listeners is to tell you about some of the books that I've cuz I'm not going to ask you about what your favorite book is cuz that's like asking you your favorite child. Exactly. And by the way, about favorite children, on any given day, I know which one is my favorite. It just keeps changing, that's all. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, but I'm still not going to ask you that question, but I'm going to tell you about some books and series that I've loved. And then um, I would love to hear why those are meaningful to you or how they're meaningful to you. So, for example, and and maybe if you want to throw in constraints here and there, let's to stay on the theme. So the first one is actually... The Homecoming series. I was introduced to you through this series, not Ender's Game. And for me, this was in many ways a feminist series very much ahead of its time. And the the character that I loved, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, is Hushith. And she, she's a raveler. And you wrote this about her. Um, she lives in the constant awareness of all the connections and relationships among the people around her. Having a web sense is naturally the most important thing in her life as she watches people connect and detach from one another forming communities and dissolving them. So that series was important to me for those reasons. I'd love to hear why it's meaningful to you. 
Well, see, here's the amazing thing is that that is not what I had in mind when I began it. Uh, it is actually, uh, when, when I was in grad school, I studied Middle English romance, and I realized that the best of them were great science fiction novels if you just changed the ocean to space. Uh, hmm. And, you know, whenever you cross an ocean, then I regard that as a space voyage and going to another planet instead of another continental mass or island. But uh, taking that idea, which I had talked about with my uh, usual editor, Beth Meacham, at Tor for a long time, I said, Beth, what if I take the Book of Mormon, uh, the way that so many people base stories on the Bible and, and other uh, uh, sacred writings and, and myths and stories from other cultures, I'd like to take the Book of Mormon and do that, change the ocean to space, change all the names, turn it into a science fiction epic. Well, that was the plan, and I certainly sort of followed it. It's a five-book a five book series that was supposed to go all the way through the Book of Mormon. It barely goes a quarter of the way in because I kept getting sidetracked on things like what you describe. Uh, I drew a map of the city of Basilica, and I absolutely fell in love with the city, and it dawned on me, this is a city of women. And so I invented the idea that only women are allowed to be citizens and a man can enter and dwell in the city only if he's under a marriage contract. But it's illegal to, to have a marriage contract that lasts more than a year or so. It has to continually be renewed. And if the woman chooses not to renew, out goes the man. Uh, and, and he has, you know, there's a settlement of uh, rejected or hopeful men just outside the city walls. But to dwell in the city, you have to have been accepted and, and have a place in the life of a woman. Now, mm. if you're a boy and you grow up and you know, you're born to a woman in the city, then obviously there are boys all over the city. But when you reach adulthood, uh, you leave. Now, I actually got much of this idea from uh, Shirley Strum's. Is it Shirley? Yeah, I think it's Shirley or maybe Susan Strum. It is Shirley Strum. Uh, her book, Almost Human, about baboons wonderful scientist who was really turning the whole concept of what a troop of baboons was about. All of the previous anthropologists or primatologists were men who had stood off at a distance watching through binoculars. She was the first who, following the uh, admonition of uh, Professor Leakey, uh, just went among the baboons and just sat there long enough that they got used to her and she could observe the life close up. And what she discovered was that all of the male display, the assertion of male dominance, the most displaying and violent and intrusive male was not the top male, he was the bottom male. Because hmm. this was a troop of females. And the females remained. Males would enter the troop, gradually win a place there where they were accepted by the females, where they befriended the female, where the female's children would... Um, accept that male. And so they lived very peacefully when they were fully accepted. They were only obnoxious displayers when they first arrived. But they would stay for about five years, that is, until the earliest of their offspring, who were female, were coming of age. And when they started going into estrus, we don't know what signals the baboons use, but the male just ups and leaves. And uh, there's, you know, wow. nobody boots him out, but he just goes so that he doesn't accidentally mate with one of his own daughters, which is great for the uh, bloodline uh, and amazing as a social institution. So that was my city of Basilica, uh, was uh, echoing what I had learned from baboons. I, from that book, I actually 
came to the conclusion that civilization is an invention of women uh, mm. because women are the ones who benefit most from it. Uh, with males, the old alpha male system, which is the polygamous, polygamous nomad tribal leader, uh, that works great for the males who happen to be the top males. But if you want to have a peaceful society where everybody who wants to mate has a reasonable opportunity to do so, then you need to, have, you need to get rid of the alpha male. And that's the whole business of civilization, is to try to contain the alpha male and uh, allow the uh, secondary males like me, uh, who are intellectual or artistic or whatever, uh, the, the guys who could make the best arrowheads but were not particularly wonderful on the hunt. It was okay for them to stay home, make arrowheads, and they could still mate and pass their intelligence and skill, uh, the, the innate skills, and the learned skills, either through uh, heredity or through uh, culture, on to the next generation. Wow. And so civilization, to me, then, is best served by following the instincts of females who form rigid hierarchies in the baboons. They form rigid hierarchies that never change until the death of a female. Um, the top female is the top female until she's gone. And so, unlike uh, male gorillas, there's no challenging her. She's, okay, she's, so we've got. Lost. Okay, so I, <laughs> I could listen to you talk about this all day, but I want to get to a couple more books before we get to break, and we've got like three and a half minutes. Sure. So let's let's go really but quickly you asked me to. You excited me about it, and that was it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is fascinating, and it's especially something I've been thinking about some more, thinking about recently, is the the male female aspect of it. So another one, um, obviously, Ender's Game. Um, I read that in the early morning hours with our when right after our first child was born, and and also it's been especially meaningful for me because Ender is a textbook disruptor, playing war games that no one wants to play. And I'm not going to ask you to so much comment on that, but in retrospect, the relationship with Ender and Jane, I think so much of your work prefigured cloud computing and artificial intelligence. So, any quick thoughts on Ender's game before we the go to funny break? Funny thing is, I still regard Jane as a complete fantasy character in the sense that I don't think computers will ever be able to mimic uh, real intelligence, human intelligence. They can't yeah. handle language yet. They never will, I don't think. Um, the best grammar check checkers are awful. Um, on Quora, I recently uh, responded to somebody's query. He said, what grammar checker should I use as I'm learning English to help me write better? And I said, none of them. Stay away from them. Just learn the language. Because yeah. uh, I once took an article by John Dvorak, wonderful writer. I took an essay of his in a computer magazine and ran it through the, the best grammar checker at the time, when the one that everybody said, this is wonderful, you can rely on it. And I made every change that that grammar checker uh, suggested, and I kept running the revised versions through until it no longer suggested any changes. So according to that grammar checker, it was perfect. It sounded like it was written by a first-year Korean student of English as a second language. It mm. was horrible. And that's where grammar checkers always lead you. If you're already a native speaker, you'll know to reject the things that sound stupid. But if you're learning English as a second language and you rely on a grammar checker, you're going to be led astray. Well, that's the mm. problem that we have with, with uh, thinking of um, intelligent computers. It's so fun to write fiction uh, with a sidekick like Jane who travels with uh, Ender wherever he goes, and no one knows she's there because she's just a jewel in his ear, uh, talking to him uh, subvocally. He subvocalizes her, so nobody even knows he's talking to her. There's not okay. even any whispering. So now, Scott, that's, the that's jewel... Fantasy. The, I don't believe the, it. 
the jewel in my ear is saying we need to go to break. Okay. Um, so we will be right back after this commercial spot talking more with Orson Scott Card, best known as a science fiction author of Ender's Game and currently a professor at Southern Virginia University. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want more of personal disruption? Whitney Johnson's book, Disrupt Yourself, which the Boston Globe described as the What Color Is Your Parachute career guide of today, is available wherever books are sold. If you're wondering how to apply these ideas to build a team that can manage through change, her new book, Build an A-Team, published by Harvard Business Press, is now available for pre-order. In the meantime, you can hear more in-depth interviews with disruptors at WhitneyJohnson.com. Today's innovative companies use SAP solutions to transform their business. On hashtag SAP Talks, your host, David Treitz, will introduce you to the people behind those companies, discuss how they resolve their most pressing business challenges, and share lessons learned. Tune in monthly to hashtag SAP Talks on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. To reach Whitney Johnson with a question or comment about the show, please send your email to wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Now, back to Disrupt Yourself Live. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Orson Scott Card, author of over 70 books, and most recently the novel Children of the Fleet, which is a return to the universe of Ender's Game. Before we went to break, we were talking about some books that I've loved and then asking Scott Card to respond to those. And I want to just share a couple more and then ask you the question, um, characters that you've learned the most from, what they've taught you about yourself, maybe the self you didn't want to see, your shadow self, as well as your best self. So I'll give you a chance to kind of think about that for a second while I tell you a couple more books that I've loved. One was Stone Tables, which is a retelling of the Moses story, Rachel and Rebecca. I think for me, these these stories and books really helped these biblical figures that we've all read about. They can sometimes feel so flat. And in the words of my friend, Julie Berry, they helped, you helped me have them feel round. Um, I also loved Enchantment and Magic Street. Both just made me really happy to read. And then well, I'm glad very, you like those. I think they're my best novels. 
Really? Yeah. Interesting. Enchantment and Magic Street, you think, are your best. Okay, why? Okay, do tell. Why, 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 why? It's so fascinating. Well, for me, I didn't plan it that way, but Enchantment turned out to be my book on marriage. What, what I think my marriage means mm. and what marriage in general means, how you become uh, helpmates to each other, uh, people who can count on each other and rely on each other and trust uh, through, through the long haul. Uh, real marriage, not not nonce marriage, not marriage for the moment. Uh, right. And then with Magic Street, the project was to write uh, a black superhero. Really, uh, uh-huh. my a good friend of mine who is a, a black comics fan and was frustrated by the uh, nearly utter dearth of black uh, superheroes, except as sidekicks. Um, you know, I said, well, I, I do have my character Arthur Stewart in the Alvin Maker series, and and he said, yeah, but he's a sidekick. And mm. so I, I said, I can't write, I can't write a uh, uh, black hero uh, because I don't know black culture. I've, I've never been black and I never will be. So, you know, I, I would be faking it. And he says, I'll help. And he did. He helped tremendously. And, uh, and so basically I wrote this novel uh, that was both a take on some aspects of Midsummer Night's Dream, and yet it's set in an upper-middle-class black neighborhood in L.A., and uh, it is, uh, every major character in it is black. And uh, I feel like I kind of pulled it off, kind of, um, but I avoided all the cliches of the black criminal elements that we're constantly seeing on television and in movies. Uh, this is upper middle class blacks, uh, educated, uh, ref- as refined as upper middle class whites, uh, or perhaps more so. Uh, and I'm really proud of the result. I think it's it's my most mm. magical story. That's wonderful. Now I want to go back and reread them because it's been a while. So with that, then let me ask you the question: Which are who are some characters that you have learned the most from? Well, you know, when when I think about that, it's of course all of the characters come out of my head. So you know, what am I going to learn from them? They're not going to teach me anything that I didn't already know. But I may not have known that I knew it, because there are several kinds of knowledge, and I'm going to sound a little Dick Cheney-ish here, but there's, there's the stuff that you know that you know, just as there's <laughs> the stuff that you know that you don't know. But often there are things that you don't know that you don't know that you don't know them because you don't know that they could be known. And there are the things that you do know, but you don't realize you know them because you've never vocalized them, you've never used it. You, you don't, and, and as a writer, I don't know uh, many of the things that I actually know intuitively and instinctively until a character says them or does them. And so I have had some characters who have, usually by being smart alecky, uh, <laughs> given me maxims and ideas that, that uh, became useful to me. But it's usually through the long haul. When I am writing about a character in more than one book and I really explore who that character is, um, that I come to understand them. And when you come to understand another person, something that is much easier for a fiction writer to do with a fictional character than with any real people, because real people remain perversely independent and keep doing things that surprise you no matter how well you think you know them. Um, but with, with a fictional character, I come to actually understand them. Here's the thing that I find. Even and give us an example. Give us an example. I still love. Okay. I, uh, the more I know them, the more I come to love them and care about mm-hmm. them and wish that they would make better choices. 
And when that happens, your bad guys don't remain Darth Vader. They become something quite more, uh, quite a bit more nuanced, more real and understandable. And so by the end of a book, I rarely have a villain. Uh, if I had a villain, then he's probably either crazy or just loves evil. And it's hard to write those guys. I, I just can't stay very long in their heads because they don't think like me. I don't actually mm-hmm. love evil. And so uh, it's, it's reassuring to know that I am uncomfortable writing those characters. Uh, it's kind of thrilling to find that I become quite comfortable with characters who mean well, whose self-story is one of trying to do the right thing and then recognizing when they fail and trying to make up for it, trying to you know, take responsibility for what they do. To name a particular character would be hard because ultimately they all act that way because mm. they all do what I do, which is do your best to take responsibility for what is your responsibility, for what you caused, for what you did, and then try to make amends, try to make things better, try to improve yourself and improve the lives of the people around you. I think that's what being a good person is. And when I write about good people, I find that readers who also think that those things are good respond well to those characters. Interesting. Okay, you're being incredibly evasive and not giving me an actual answer to that question, but I'm going to let it go. Well, there were no easy answers. I did give you a true answer. Uh, You did. (laughs) So um, when people come into class the very first day, what's one of the first things you have them do? The first thing I I usually do, uh, besides exercises and using viewpoint, that's just, you know, that's just got to be done. That's the craft. uh, We have what I call a thousand ideas session. And I just ask them a bunch of questions, and they come up with a story together. Though I am the arbiter, I decide which ones we pursue and follow. But my point of that exercise is to show them that ideas are cheap, that coming mm-hmm. up with ideas for stories is about as, it's pathetically easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing how to structure them into a story is hard. And I go through a session in, in which we take one of those ideas that we came up with, one of those story ideas, and then I show how you develop a structure for it. And it's not the three-act structure in all of the writing classes. That's, I got the screenwriting classes that talk about a three-act structure. Uh, I just have to say that I have little respect for that because there is no such structure in stories that work. Uh, but, but, you know, there's the, I, I talk about that at length. I have a book, Characters and Viewpoint, and another one, How to Write uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy, both of which... Uh, teach my principles of, of uh, construction, of structure. Uh, and they're, they're just guidelines for how to know where to start your story mm. and how to wrap it up. And okay. basically, it's, it's your ending that determines what your beginning needs to be. You need to promise the story you intend to deliver. Interesting. But then, you know, you have to outline, you have to plan, you have to have an idea in mind of what your structure is going to be in order to be able to move forward with confidence. But then I warn my students... If you follow your outline literally, you will end up with a crappy story. Because along the way, your unconscious mind is going to plunk characters down that you like, that aren't in your outline. And they're going to have their own lives. They're going to have their own needs and desires. And if you don't respect those, if you make everybody fit your outline, none of your characters will be real. And you will be, you won't even believe in your own story because you're ignoring your own unconscious impulses. The best stuff in the story is not in your outline ever. And 
I, you know, at the risk of boring people, I could could uh, go through many of my stories and talk about huge characters, really major characters that were just nonce characters, people that were placeholders. Uh, uh, they began that way, but I was more intrigued by them than by the hero, and they ended up becoming really important. And so, uh, you know, in Ender's Game, Petra, Bean, uh, Dink. Uh, these were nonce characters. I had no, there was no plan for them. I had no plan for any of those characters. And they ended up being extremely important to me and to the story. And, uh, and that happens in every novel. If it isn't happening, there's something seriously wrong. So you have to be interruptible. You have to be, you have to allow your unconscious mind to disrupt your plan. And yet, you still have to keep aiming toward that goal, that ending that you planned from so- the start. Speaking of being interruptible, I have a question for you. Sure. You are, let's go back to this constraints as we start to wrap up. We've got just a few minutes left. You are obviously in this enviable position for an author. And yet, if we believe that constraints are a tool of creation, how do you continue to impose constraints on your writing so that you continue to do your best work? Um, That's, part of it is just the form imposes that mm. restraint. Uh, okay. There are things that you do much more easily in fiction uh, and other things that are easier in movies, and you do the fiction things in fiction, and you do the movie things in a screenplay. Uh, but there are other constraints. Uh, for one thing, I could spend time writing novels, and, I, I w- and sometimes I would really rather, writing novels that have no science fiction or fantasy element in them. My favorite genre is uh, romantic comedy or satiric comedy. But I never get to write that because uh, I have to make a certain income level. And Mm. the market for my work is uh, generally within the science fiction and fantasy genre. When I step out of that genre, the sales are much lower. So publishers are eager for books from me in genre and not so eager for books out of genre. So Mm. I just live with that. And I occasionally write something. I have a a book called... um, A Town Divided by Christmas, very slim book that will be coming out this next fall from uh, Blackstone, which is moving from being just an uh, an audio publisher to being an audio and print publisher. And they're bringing out that book, which has no science fiction or fantasy element in it, though it does have scientists as major characters, uh, coming to a small town in North Carolina where the town is riven in half. They're doing genetic research, and the town is strictly divided in half according to a quarrel from decades before about which newborn baby got to be Jesus in the Christmas pageant. And it's a Christmas romance. That's what it is, and I love it. But it has its own restraints. There are certain things that must happen and can't happen, and, and I'm happy to know those restraints. If I don't know them and I'm just flailing around... Uh, It's the limitations, it's the rules. When I write magic in fantasy, uh, you have to have rules for the magic. If anything can happen, Judson Jerome once said this to me. He said, Scott, if if anything can happen, who cares what does happen? And so you have to be able to lay out what the rules Mm -hmm. of magic are so that you know what can't happen. But every time you create a magical rule, it carries with it the implications of dozens, maybe hundreds of stories, good stories, because now you know who's going to be having problems, where the problems will arise, where the unusual person will be. And uh, it helps you to, uh, to find your way through what could be just the chaos of anything can happen mm-hmm. style fantasy. 
That's so wonderful. Okay, we're about to wrap up. My very last question for you is anything that you'd like to share that's kind of come up in, you know, 30, 45 seconds that you think is important that kind of occurred to you that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap? Oh, then I have I have nothing I can say in 30 to 40 seconds. Let me just mention some uh, some books that I'm reading right now. I just finished a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, which I think, if for anybody who cares about understanding the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, this book is absolutely marvelous. Uh, then there's a book called Jane and Dorothy, A True Tale of Sense and Sensibility, and it follows Dorothy Wordsworth, the sister of the poet William Wordsworth, and Jane Austen. They're near contemporaries. Well, they overlap, certainly, in their lives. And it's a marvelous book about growing up female in uh, pre-Victorian England. Um, I also uh, recently read a great science fiction novel. I don't read much science fiction now, but it's called Helldivers. And I would tell you the author's name, but I can never hold it in my head, except his last name is Smith. Uh, and, of course, that's a rare, rare one. Easy to find that on Google, but, but yeah. it's Helldivers, two separate words. There are two books already written. The third book is coming out in the middle of next month. And I really found it gripping, thrilling, uh, good characterization, amazing action-adventure, better than Tom Clancy. Uh, Really, I I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm reading Thomas Sowell's book on discrimination, his, you know, uh, good economics stuff. And um, he's one of the most brilliant minds, uh, I think, writing on on, uh, economics today. And uh, I've got about six other books going on various uh, machines that I have, uh, you know, that I have uh, my Kindle books on, plus my stack of uh, real books, print books to read. So, you know, that's a if great I had list. any Thank advice you. for anybody, just read stuff you don't think you'll like. Love it. That is wonderful parting advice. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know. We look forward to hearing from you at wj at whitneyjohnson.com. Scott, where can people find you? At hatrack.com. H-A-T-R-A-C-K, hatrack, like you hang a hat on. Fantastic. Until next time, I'm Whitney Johnson, and you've been listening to Disrupt Yourself Live. Thank you for being a part of Disrupt Yourself Live this week. Remember, our show is broadcast every Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Episodes are always available on demand at the Voice America Business Channel. Please join your host, Whitney Johnson, for another edition next week.